Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, policy, and mentorship, and leadership. And today is a policy podcast with the one and only Dr. Stacey Dusitzina talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, uh, you've heard a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed into law um, recently. Uh, And probably you don't know all of the details about this law, except the fact that it is designed to hopefully reduce drug prices and allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices for Medicare beneficiaries. Well, that's all nice and dandy, but the devil is in the details. And I wanted to tape this podcast to share with you more about the Inflation Reduction Act, focusing on the drug prices, the negotiation, and what that means mainly to patients. This is really important because it's really the first time that we have the ability of Medicare to negotiate prices. And with this, I've invited Dr. Stacy. Dusit Zina, who is an associate professor in health policy and the Ingram Associate Professor of Cancer Research at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Uh, Stacy is uh, now a third time appearing on Healthcare Unfiltered, and I couldn't be happier because she simplifies complex policy issues like no one else. You really need to read her articles, often in the New England Journal of Medicine, amongst other top journals. And the way she writes, she really explains things in a way that you don't need to be a physician or researcher to understand. And uh, uh, Stacy actually was even invited to the uh, signing of the law at the White House. So that must have been a fun experience. And I will ask her about that. So I really appreciate you tuning in. This is really an important podcast. Uh, And before I air the episode, I really want to solicit your feedback and ask you to rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and if you have time, write a brief review. By writing a brief review, you will get the podcast noticed by others. And if you refer friends and colleagues to the podcast, I would be forever grateful. You can watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can follow me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or Instagram, Chadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. If you are a loyal listener, hit me up on Twitter and ask me for the famous Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. Also, check out my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Without further ado, Dr. Stacy Dusitzina on Healthcare Unfiltered. All right, folks. Well, I am excited. If you can't, if you're watching me on uh, the YouTube channel, you'll see I'm excited because I'm smiling and um, because I have one of my favorite guests on this show. And I think, Stacy, this is probably number three. So um, the good news, it means I have not messed up yet, which is good. Um, and I'm very sensitive to your time. So very, very grateful that you come on the show again. Um, but just for folks who, um, you know, haven't had a chance to meet you and, and follow you on Twitter, which I highly recommend, it's, uh, you have a nice combo between when you talk science, but you also do a lot of fun things that you post. So just tell us a little about you, where you work, what you do, and, um, and how you spend your day. 
Sounds great. And thanks for having me back. Um, I don't know if your listeners know, but guests get the most awesome t-shirt after. <laughs> um, best shirt I've ever gotten as part of a podcast. <laughs> I have a new color. I need to send you I have a blue color now. I'm going to send you a blue one. Awesome. <laughs> um, so I'm Stacey Dusetzina, and I'm a faculty member at Vanderbilt in the Department of Health Policy in the Medical Center. And I spend pretty much all of my time thinking about prescription drug policy, um, cost of drugs to patients, and especially around um, the cost of cancer drugs and affordability and access issues. Um, I've spent a lot of the time over the last probably 10 years or so in focusing on Medicare. And um, more recently, I was appointed to MedPAC as one of the commissioners. So I think even more about Medicare than I have in the past, uh, all aspects of Medicare, but still have an affinity for the drug policy related pieces. And our goal is to get Stacy out of a job. That our goal is to fix all of this where she just literally just retires and, and go fishing. So, so I've asked you to come on the show because there's so much about the Inflation Reduction Act. So I want to focus on that. That's really the topic of today's show is um, to really have a better understanding what, what is the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, what it is, and, and the impact of that on, on drug prices. So can you take us a little bit back in history? When did the discussion about something pertaining to Inflation Reduction Act or maybe whatever act it was named before that start? And, and then maybe take us after that into what it is that is in it and is it now law, did it pass and, and all of that stuff. So I'll it's open-ended, but you take us there. Sure, so um, when did it start? I think is probably pretty debatable, uh, especially based on the drug policy provisions that eventually got passed. Um, so if you ask some people who are more historians around negotiations about drug policy, they might argue that it started 40 years ago, where we were talking about the same problems um, and trying to address them. More recently, I'd say in um, 2019 in particular, there was a big effort to try to introduce some of these policies. The House um, passed H.R. 3, which was a drug pricing bill that had a lot of the elements that ended up being carried forward. You probably remember Build Back Better, which was introduced again, I think it was the end of 2021, that that it was, you know, had made its way through the house and then got completely dismantled, reset, etc. earlier this year. So it's, it is basically a reincarnation of Build Back Better, but a slimmed down version of that set of policies. Um, and the Inflation Reduction Act um, I kind of joke that these things happen when I go on vacation. So I had a really great vacation plan in July of this year. And literally like the day I left the country, they, they were like, it's been reintroduced. And it's like, well, of course it has, <laughs> like, of, of course. Um, and then, um, I think it surprised everybody that it actually went through the budget reconciliation process. Um, this is a mechanism where you don't have to have uh, the majority support, the 60 votes you can get by with a 
a slim majority. So they needed 50 votes from the Democrats and one vote from uh, Vice President Harris to get it passed through this particular mechanism. And they passed it um, on a weekend and then the president signed it into law on um, August 16th of this year. So Inflation Reduction Act, there's, I mean, as the name implies, let's say I know nothing about what's in it, and we're going to go what's in it about drug prices and costs, but it's titled Inflation Reduction Act. Am I to assume as a citizen that this was designed to reduce the high inflation rate that has occurred over the past year? So... I think this is a branding opportunity for Democrats to think about like what to name it in a way that would make it even more popular for constituents who maybe don't care about any of the individual elements that are in the law. I've heard a lot of pushback that this doesn't actually do much to address inflation that all of us have noticed over the last you know year. Um, instead, it has some different elements. Um, the most notable, I think, is that it has some really uh, large changes around climate policy and drug policy, and I believe other changes around um, labor policies. So it actually covers quite a bit of ground for different uh, groups who have been really pushing hard for policies to change for a long time. But whether it would have a direct effect on inflation that people are feeling right now, I think is debatable. <laughs> so maybe so, it could be like, a, I don't know, maybe it could like a marketing name or something, just, you know. Yeah, the name is interesting because, um, you know, it's fine. It's like we always have names for laws that maybe don't reflect exactly what they do. Um, it is one of those that I think maybe because I had been reading uh, that excellent book uh, that was called Say Nothing About Ireland and uh, some of the conflicts, everybody keeps shortening it to IRA, which means something very different if you're thinking about the history of Ireland. And I'm like, oh, I can't shorten it. You just have to just say the whole thing, Inflation Reduction Act, don't, don't shorten it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it, at least it's good for listeners to understand that this really was not necessarily designed to reduce inflation, despite the name, how the name implies. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so um, let's focus into what's in it as pertaining to drug prices. Um, I don't think we need to tell listeners that drugs are expensive. I think it's, you know, we don't need to go. It's, obviously, they're expensive. Um, so what did the law do to re at least to attempt reducing the prices? So it did a lot, um, and but I would say that it's important to realize it did a lot for Medicare and not for everyone. Um, part of this is, again, the mechanism by which it was passed, which is through the reconciliation process where things that were related to potential benefits to commercially insured people got stripped out during the uh, process of reconciling uh, the law and um, the technical details of which are a little bit above my pay grade or different uh, skill set. <laughs> um, but in any case, what I'll be talking about really applies to Medicare beneficiaries almost exclusively. So there are quite a few things. Um, I will talk about first the one that I think has gotten the most 
news and I'll save my favorite part for last. So the one that gets the most headlines is the introduction of drug price negotiation in the Medicare program. So when Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit that you use at the pharmacy was first passed in 2003, it banned Medicare from negotiating the price of drugs as part of that law. So legally, there have been no option for Medicare to negotiate drug prices. On Part B, the physician-administered drugs, they also are kind of price takers. The companies set the price and Medicare pays the average sales price plus a markup. So this law actually gives Medicare for the first time ever the ability to negotiate the price of a small number of drugs. So they start out with 10 drugs in the first year where drugs are allowed to be negotiated, which is 2026. And it's only Part D drugs for the first couple of years of negotiation. Eventually, it expands to Part B and Part D drugs and up to 20 drugs negotiated in a year. The rules are kind of set up in a way to prevent uh, there from being a lot of concern around the effects on innovation. So they've targeted high spending drugs, the top 50 highest spending drugs in each of the programs as drugs that could be considered for negotiation. Older drugs, so if it's a pill, it has to be at least nine years after it was first approved. And if it's a biologic, it has to be 13 years after it was first approved. And it can't have any um, real competition from generics or biosimilars. So if it has a generic or biosimilar on the market, then it's not eligible for negotiation. So that is the piece that has probably gotten the most attention uh, because it is something that we have been hoping Medicare could do in some cases where we've seen things like patent abuse or things where, you know, drugs are on the market and don't have competition for many, many years after they should. So that that's the most, uh, the one that gets the most fanfare. There's also limits on price increases of drugs to the rate of inflation. That doesn't sound like a great idea this year, but in general, inflation has only been about 2% on average for maybe the last decade. So companies that raise their prices faster than that will have to pay that money back to Medicare as a penalty. So instead, like in the cancer drug space, for example, I think the average price increase over time has been over 5% above inflation. So you could actually achieve a lot of savings by reducing the amount that companies can increase their prices. So let, let's start with the first piece, which is the, um, you said it's up to 10 drugs now, and then it becomes 20 drugs within a year. So uh, it's 10 drugs in 2026. That'll be the first year that they're negotiated. Then 15 in 2027, 15 in 2028, and 20 in 2029. So, so call me silly, call me silly, call me stupid. Why wait till 2026? So there's a um, part of the negotiation process is a fairly long and drawn out 
process of actually having a negotiation with the manufacturer. So what happens is that the secretary will need to identify the list of candidate drugs that would be selected for negotiation two years in advance of that price being applied to them. So you get a heads up if you're the manufacturer that your drug has been identified as a candidate for negotiation. And then there's a bunch of back and forth between the manufacturer and the Secretary of Health and Human Services that basically says, you know, they want to know things like, what did it cost you to make this drug? And how much federal investment was given for this drug's development? And other things like the novelty of the product, how much benefit people get, the cost effectiveness of the drug. So there's actually quite a lot of information that has to be generated or shared in order to kind of justify this drug being selected for negotiation. So that has to start two years in advance, which basically means if we start to negotiate prices in 2026, we have to have the entire plan for how to do that set by the beginning of 2024, which gives CMS like a year, like roughly, to set up a very new and somewhat complex way of deciding how to evaluate these drugs. Is it is it possible? I mean, uh, okay, so this law was passed uh, right now. So 2024, uh, whether it is uh, the current president, a different Democratic president or a Republican president, can they revoke the entire law and say, you know what, uh, uh, that's completely done? And the reason I ask that, that's why, you know, waiting means that you're waiting for another change in policy, that you run the risk that everything you've done could be gone with a scribble of a signature. Um, yes, I would say that that is a potential risk. Um, and I think especially for the drug price negotiation piece, it is a bigger risk than other parts of the bill or the law. Um, the inflation rebates, so the taxes on your price going up faster than inflation actually kick in next year. So some parts of this will already be in motion. Um, I think that once it has started, you're more likely to have uh, support to keep it going. But you're exactly right. Like if we don't have negotiation in place and the administration changes and the feelings of people in the administration change, it's possible that we could see challenges to doing negotiation. Um, we'll have to see. We have to see. So, and these are, um, so the 10 drugs, these are not necessarily cancer drugs, although obviously cancer drugs do cost more, probably on average, more than other drugs. But how are the 10 drugs selected? Is that based on uh, like revenue, uh, volume of sales? Uh, I, you, yep. mentioned, you mentioned a couple of things. They must not have a biosimilar. They must That's not right. have a generic. Um, That's right. Okay. Uh, so they, the candidate list is starts with the 50 drugs with the highest sales in Part D and the 50 drugs with the highest sales in Part B. So they are going to probably have a mix of drugs that are 
commonly used brand name drugs for chronic conditions that just have huge, huge sales. Um, <clears throat> anticoagulants would be a good example of this, where we know that there are so many users and the price per user is relatively high for, for these small molecule drugs. Um, diabetes drugs, some of the newer drugs tend to be up near the top of the high spending list in Medicare. And then cancer drugs are the other one um, where we have not nearly as many users, but such a high price per user that they tend to end up falling into the top, even top 10. You know, if you look at the top 10 drugs right now, you've got anticoagulants, diabetes treatment, inhalers, and cancer drugs. Um, so I think that they definitely will be among the products that are being considered for negotiation. Um, and then all of those other kind of criteria apply to figure out which ones are candidates, and then you proceed from there. But it starts with the drugs, with the 50 highest spending drugs in the program. So you start with the 50 and then you take out anything that has a biosimilar, you take out anything that has a generic, maybe you're left with 30, let's say, and then out of these 30, you're going to select the top 10 based on additional criteria. And these are the ones you go to the manufacturer as a Medicare and you negotiate. That's right. So how do you envision this negotiation to go? Like, I mean, you know, so I'm the manufacturer and you're Medicare. Let's negotiate the price of drug X. How, how would that go? So they have set up a, a series of rules that basically create this ceiling of the price. Um, so for example, if your drug is between, I think it's nine and 12 years old, um, you know, just a kind of, you, you're on the early side of the old drugs, <laughs> your young old drug, um, you basically would have a your price lowered by a smaller percentage than you would if you were a much older drug. So if your drug has been around for 16 years, the price that's negotiated, you have a 60% discount as the minimum discount required under that old, old drug um, category. And I believe it's only 25% if you're in kind of the younger drug. And I believe 35% if you're in between. Now that's kind of the minimum price. Um, there's also an inclusion of a piece kind of recognizing that there is negotiation that happens for some drugs in Medicare today by the PBMs and the health plans doing those negotiations. And so they will also say, you can't have the negotiated price be higher than the current net price. So once we factor in rebates for drugs that have head-to-head -head competition, like we won't pay more than that. You know, to me, that is a little tricky because if you happen to grab a handful of drugs that actually are, you know, have a lot of competition, you might not really save money by including them in, in your set of negotiated drugs. And I'll, I'll point again to the anticoagulants uh, or even insulin or diabetes treatments. They have very large negotiated rebates that are included uh, to get their prices to health plans and to Medicare lower. So if you selected those for negotiation, you might not actually save any additional money. You just revert back to paying the same thing you're paying under the current plans. 
Why, why would you not save? I'm mis- I, 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 I lost you there. Because the negotiated price, that minimum percentage price reduction is based on the average manufacturer price, which does not include rebates. So if you get uh-huh. a large rebate already and you're not a very old drug, the minimum, like the price that you would pay would either be 25% off of the gross price or whatever your post-rebate price is today. Now, if picked strategically, you can save a ton of money. So we know, for example, that cancer drugs don't tend to have rebates or have very small rebates. So if you select a cancer drug, almost certainly you're going to save money because that minimum percent discount is going to actually be better than any price that you're negotiating today. Got it. So then for Medicare Part B, uh, currently, obviously, it's the average sales price. These are the infusion drugs given in physicians' offices. They're ASP plus 6% or 4%, depending on where things fall. These also will be negotiated separately or included in the 10. So for example, are you have like 10 for the infused drugs and 10 for the oral drugs? So... You'll have in the first two years, it's only for the oral drugs. In the third year, in 2028, there will be 15 drugs um, in B and D together. Um, And then in 2029, 20 drugs in the two together. So basically 10, and it could be 10 and 10, uh, but it could also, I think, be a different split depending on where you had the highest spending drugs. So if for example, I, I actually, ju- I literally just read the entire bill and I'm not sure it's specified if that's split exactly, but let's say you could t- take all 20 drugs and apply that to part B. That's possible if you've already applied negotiation to part D drugs in the preceding three years and you haven't really touched part B. Got it. But but for Part B, Stacey, so you already have the ASP plus anywhere from 43 to 6%. Yep. So is the assumption that the negotiation would be will pay ASP plus 1%, plus 2%? Like is you that... will pay <clears throat> the sales price would be replaced with the fair the negotiated fair price. So same thing, except the price itself, the base price would not be the average sales price. It would be the negotiated price. Oh, which so kind the negotiated of, price plus the 6%. Yeah, which will kind of force manufacturers to lower the ASP, I think, because they have to account for the fact that there's the buy and bill system. So you're buying these drugs. You have to be able to buy them at that discounted price to be able to break even. For oncology practices that are, um, they infuse in their offices and mainly these are large community sites. What do you envision the impact of the negotiating of part B? Um, it's a good question. I I think it's a little bit hard to say because it will rely on companies basically lowering the sales price to make sure that the price that is being paid when you purchase the drugs isn't higher than the price you're going to get paid back by Medicare. So you basically end up in a situation where if 
if the companies don't lower the average sales price or the the price that you're paying as a you know physician's office mm-hmm. then you will basically lose money on the margin between what you get paid back by medicare for the fair price and what you paid to obtain the drug now there are special carve outs for 340b so a lot of practices and a lot of oncologists work in spaces that have 340B discounts. So there's specifically a lot of things in the bill do not apply to the 340B sales. But imagine, you know, if you purchase a drug under 340B discounts and then you get paid back the fair price, you won't make as much money on that sale, but like it would still be better than, um, if you didn't qualify for those discounts and you were paying the full price. So it's almost what's going to happen is that the manufacturer is going to sit at the table with CMS and they're going to just go through a mathematical formula in terms of back and forth negotiation. Is the pharma lobby uh, happy about this? What's have, Have we seen any reaction in terms of I guess from the manufacturer industry, any reaction that you've seen that was stated publicly? Oh, I mean, they spent so much money fighting this, um, like their marketing campaigns and lobbying efforts were huge to try to prevent this from happening. Um, So of course there is just this complete promotion of the idea that innovation will grind to a halt if you touch prices at all. And um, yeah, it's basically the exact response that you would expect from especially kind of the lobbying arm of the industry. You know, I think they certainly had more round when we were talking about negotiation that was envisioned under something like HR3, which would have expanded negotiation and applied this international reference price to virtually all drugs, you know, I could see the argument that that is a very, um, like that policy affects so much of their sales and so many products that it could have a meaningful effect on innovation and investment in the pharmaceutical industry. This current version of drug price negotiation is pretty limited in the number of drugs it touches and all the different rules about like what is allowed to be negotiated. It has to be older. It has to have no meaningful competition. So like it's really targeting drugs that probably should have some form of competition already, but the market isn't working as well as it should. So I think that their response is exactly what um, you expect them to say and do. Uh, A little bit of the sky is falling, kind of, we we won't have innovation, but but I... Yeah. But but Stacey, so so I'm just I'm I'm perplexed a little bit about that the drugs have to have no competition because in cancer at least and I can't really comment a lot on outside of cancer but in cancer what we struggle with is many of these me two drugs and me three drugs you've got several drugs that have the same mechanisms of action they target the same disease at the same stage. And logically, you would say, you know what, competition is going to bring the price down and it's going to help the consumer. We don't really see that. We pretty much see all of the prices are the same or more. And if you bring a new entrant to market, it's just going to enter at the same price at the other, at the incumbents and they all go up versus they all go down. 
So, yeah. so, so the bill is targeting drugs with no competition. Drugs without generic competition. So generic. it's oh. kind of treating the drugs as like not really looking at what are there other substitutes or therapeutic class like alternatives, but really focused on there isn't a generic available or there's not a biosimilar available for this particular product. Otherwise, I think it's relying on the market to work the way it normally does, where you have an actual generic entrant or biosimilar entrant, and one of their prices goes down. Uh, it doesn't work as clear cut in the cancer space as it does in some yeah. others, but I think still there is a goal of trying to balance like when to intervene. And, you know, I think often the example of Humira is given which has like extensive patents, a lot of gaming of the patent system to keep their monopoly on the product. And it's very old and we spend a ton of money on it. And, you know, biosimilar entry has been just pushed off until like, I think it it is still supposed to be coming next year, but I think it's kind of trying to target things like that where it should have had generic or biosimilar competition a long time ago. It has made a ton of money for the company. Um, and now it's time to get like the promise that is the patent system, you know, that eventually drugs will become less, less expensive as patents expire. This is a way to kind of reinforce that. So you, so you feel that broadly, this is a step in the right direction. And you, you know, despite its, you know, I think shortcomings, like everything is, but as a policy researcher and someone who spent a lot of time dissecting everything in Medicare, you're happy with what you saw. So I am pretty happy with that component. Now, I want to tell you about the part of the law that I personally find to be the most satisfying. So, uh, I think that one of the things I like about drug price negotiation and inflation rebates is it saves the Medicare program money so that Medicare can be more generous towards beneficiaries. So one way that that is happening is that there will be a cap on out-of-pocket spending on Medicare Part D for the first time ever. They will cap the out-of-pocket costs at $2,000. So we know, especially for people who need cancer treatment, they can pay thousands and even $10,000 or more out of pocket for a single drug under Part D. They will no longer have to do that once the benefit has been fully changed, which won't happen until 2025, but I'll tell you how it changes in the meantime. But once this redesign of Part D is in place, it will provide financial security for people Everybody in Medicare uh, for $2,000 is the most you'd spend on any of your drugs over the course of the year. So whether you take a lot of drugs or you take a few drugs that are really expensive, that's where you max out. To me, that is like, that's the best news ever. <laughs> I mean, we've seen for so long that the out-of-pocket costs that Medicare beneficiaries have to pay results in them not starting any of their treatments, not staying on their treatments, and really not benefiting even when they have highly effective drugs. So the Part D redesign is such a huge benefit. 
even for people who are not taking expensive drugs, um, the plan is basically to simplify the benefit. Um, you've probably heard of the coverage gap or the donut hole. That whole thing gets scrapped. You know, like basically it goes away so that the consistency of what you have to pay from one fill to the next is like the same until you hit the cap and then you don't pay anymore. So in my mind, these other policies we've been talking about help to pay for that change without having it go back and hit beneficiaries through higher premiums. So we save money on some drugs. We use that to make the benefit better. So who pays the uh, extra? I mean, I think, well, the assumption is that you max at 2000 and that would be sufficient. It's, do you think taxes will be raised to up? I mean, I don't know, or, or maybe not, maybe yes, I don't know. So for the first uh, five years or so, there is a requirement that premiums not go up by more than 6%, recognizing that there is a lot going on here that is gonna create uncertainty where plans have to get experience with negotiation, with how much are they gonna save through price negotiation, through inflation rebates, how much additional demand is there for from patients who maybe weren't filling their drugs before, who now suddenly can. So in the law, it was written in that premiums can't go up by more than 6% per year. Uh, the Medicare program, I think, will absorb that cost. You know, another part of the redesign actually shifts more responsibility onto health plans and onto manufacturers as drug spending increases. So there's a whole lot of changes. Um, so, for example, today, Medicare beneficiaries have to pay 5% when they have very high spending in the catastrophic phase. Medicare pays 80% and plans pay 15%. That whole thing gets kind of scrapped where basically once this is fully in place, patients won't pay anything. Medicare will only pay 20% down from 80%. Plans will pay 60% and then manufacturers will pay 20%. So there is kind of like this whole shifting around who pays and who's responsible as drug spending increases. Uh, that I think will also be something that CMS is going to be looking at, as, you know, to try to figure out how does this balance work? You know, do we end up getting more savings because health plans have more incentives to manage the benefit? Manufacturers have to pay more when their drugs are in the high spending categories and Medicare saves some money in the reinsurance part of the benefit. There's a lot going on. Oh my God. Uh, there is a lot going on there. Oh, okay. But all of this is only Medicare. So Medicaid is not affected. No, but there is another good component that actually is going to go into place in 2024 that um, actually expands access to low-income subsidies to this kind of partial subsidy group. So Typically, we think about uh, Medicare beneficiaries uh, who have very low incomes. They get Medicaid wraparound coverage, and they don't have to pay much of anything. But to qualify for that, you have to have very low income and low assets. There's also been this partial subsidy program, which is for people who have 
just slightly above that level, that low income level, and who have modest assets. But that still required them to pay a lot of money when they filled their drugs. So the law also has now expanded the full subsidy up to 150% of the poverty level. So basically, it takes this group of people who were categorized as being eligible for some help and gives them a lot more help. So for people who, you know, you're seeing who have low incomes, they may now qualify for much more generous subsidies, which lower their costs dramatically relative to what they're paying today. And commercial payers, um, obviously, this does not touch them, um, but... Um... Do you do you have an opinion as to how this might impact commercial uh, payers and commercial uh, coverage as you see this happening in the CMS world? So it's pretty debated about like what potential spillover effects there might be. So um, one question is whether there would be cost shifting into other payers. So if Medicare pays less, will other payers have to pay more to make up for that? And I feel like it is hotly debated whether that's the case. In some cases, I hear people argue that you know things like the inflation rebates might actually mean that the commercial market benefits because companies will lose their incentives to raise their price, so they won't raise their price on any of the other people they're selling the drugs to. Um, I've also heard the argument that they may raise their price more for some customers uh, who are not Medicare to make up for losses. I I think that there's a big question mark over which direction it could go as far as whether this would have a negative effect or a positive effect on payers. My general view is if we think that both of those things are likely, there's probably going to be pretty minimal effect. Um, one one thing that I think is affecting the commercial market that was part of the law is that um, it extended access to subsidies on the exchange plans uh, for people. So um, when COVID hit and we were really concerned about people losing access to health insurance, there was an effort to greatly improve uh, the subsidies for people on the exchange plans to make it so that it was much more affordable for people to buy health insurance. And so um, the law extends access to those subsidies for another three years. So for people who are in the exchange plans um, and who have received that lower cost sharing or lower premium, they're going to get to keep that lower premium for the next few years as you know, and maybe eventually they'll pass a law that kind of makes that permanent, but at least getting the extra three years prevented it from having premiums increase um, in November when it would have, when people would have seen those go up. So we have these health plans, the Medicare Advantage and all of these. I mean, uh, I don't know if you, I mean, this these are a little bit different than the straight Medicare. Yep. But uh, it appears that every year with new enrollment, you get the usual uh, text or mail or stuff that they want to choose the medical advantage. And the majority of people say it's a bad idea to do that. But maybe it's not now. With, like, Adam, do you think any of this will affect Medicare Advantage plans? So 
for Medicare Advantage, all of the changes to Part D will also apply to the Medicare Advantage plans. So um, they've had similarly poor coverage for high-priced drugs on Medicare Advantage as they have in the traditional Medicare standalone Part D plans. So all of these changes will apply to both fee-for-service, uh, traditional Medicare, and Medicare Advantage. So that's good news for anybody who's using Part D. And even there's uh, one other, two other changes that I will mention that I think that they will apply to Medicare Advantage and to the standalone plans and traditional Medicare as well. These are changes to um, insulin coverage on Medicare. So $35 per fill or per roughly per month of insulin um, will be applied to every Medicare Part D plan. Um, today, beneficiaries can get into a plan that covers insulin at $35, but those are plans that are participating in a demonstration project. So now that will be expanded to all plans starting at the beginning of next year. And also all vaccines that are covered under Medicare Part D would be offered available for no cost sharing. So starting next year, there will be those two benefits that people can see and experience much earlier than some of the other changes. I swear to God, I have no idea how you keep up with all of this. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, it's like a maze. Tell me about your experience. How, how did you come about that you were invited to the White House? And like after all of this happened, you were there at the signing of the bill. How did this come about? So um, I was very fortunate, like uh, working in a policy research space, uh, you always hope that someone is reading your papers or using <laughs> your papers. <laughs> Everybody is reading your papers. <laughs> um, so it was an opportunity where... Um, I actually had a paper that was very proud of that showed um, that 30% of people who had new prescriptions for cancer drugs were not actually filling them. And these were people on Medicare who uh, did not have low income subsidies. So people who would be faced with thousands of dollars in out-of-pocket spending for any of these drugs. And we found that, you know, 30% percent of people and these are people treated at academic medical centers they have yeah. a new prescription etc like this is a shameful thing for like us to have people in this horrible position not being able to start treatment there was a lot of interest by the white house in using this information and and like getting more information about the study and um, I also have had the benefit of being able to engage with different committees and different staff members around drug policy work, um, the sec Secretary Becerra, like different groups over time of just like being able to be part of conversations to help think through what would be the best way to make changes, how might this affect beneficiaries, like the pros and cons of different options. And so... Um, when it passed, I felt very, very lucky. I was invited to the celebration event that was just held last week. Um, I wasn't the only one. There was a huge crowd of people, you know, some labor folks, some people from climate, and then a bunch of us drug policy nerds. At one point, there was a debate over, like, which group was the nerdiest group. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
I think it'd be hard to tell, but it was a really lovely group. And um, it was really nice to be able to hang out on the White House lawn and just celebrate uh, having reached this milestone. Oh, that that's that's amazing. Hey, listen, Stacy, you know, at some point in the future, I'm confident you're gonna have a cabinet somewhere. You're gonna be at some <laughs> in some administration you will be. Just don't forget the little people who believed in you before you just don't forget that. I'm gonna I'm gonna expect you will always come on the podcast. That's not gonna change. Um <laughs> but uh maybe in the last just couple of minutes, and you've been very generous with your time. I mean Clearly, it appears this is a step in the right direction. Any, like the, the naysayers, I want you not to focus on the manufacturers. I want to, your peers, similar policy researchers like yourself, are you all in agreement that this is a good thing or are is there a debate? Is there somebody who would say, you know what? Yeah, I can see why you think it's good, but here's why I don't think so. Like what's, you know, amongst your peers, um, are you all aligned that this is a great thing or are there some folks who don't agree? So um, I don't think everyone is aligned, but there are there's a lot of alignment around certain pieces of the law. So, for example, uh, not only my peers, but even the pharma industry itself is very pro the redesign of the Medicare benefit and especially for the out-of-pocket maximum for beneficiaries. So there's a lot of like coalescing around some of these ideas. Um, limiting drug price increases is also very popular, almost regardless of who you're talking to, maybe not to the pharmaceutical industry, but um, even if you thought about like Republican members and Democratic members, there have been bipartisan efforts to get the limit on out-of-pocket costs and the inflation rebates in a drug po policy bill. So I think that there is kind of widespread agreement on those two parts. The negotiation has kind of two flavors of reject like rebuttals. One is it didn't go far enough, and the other is it <laughs> went too far. <laughs> and so I kind of feel like I always feel the uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears kind of version of like, I think it's kind of a good start. You know, I am worried that it will increase launch prices for new drugs. Um, if we basically say that there's limits on price increases and you could be subject to negotiation much later, and we don't do anything about new drug prices, I worry that that is the one big gaping hole is it possibly introduces much more aggressive pricing when new drugs are coming to the market. Because the, the current policy, you don't really start negotiating anything unless has been on the market a minimum of nine years. That's correct. So pretty much if I'm a manufacturer, I've got nine years to increase the prices all I want and you can't touch me. Year number nine is when maybe you can start negotiating if there's no generic, there's no biosimilar and other characteristics. Well, and even more than that, it's basically that the law protects us from price gouging for anything that exists now because you limit the price increases that anyone can take starting next year. So whatever your price is, if you already are on the market, like you can only raise your price by inflation from now on out. Um, but for any brand new drugs, many of which are cancer drugs, um, the price 
could potentially be yeah. set to account for those different policy changes. And I think that that is probably, even though I am a big fan and I think that I know that getting a law passed results in a lot of compromise. I think where we ended up is a really good place um, for starting and getting experience with negotiation, but I am not sure that it is um, necessarily going to solve the problems that are you know, resulting from high drug spending. And I think that combined again with no limit on drug launch prices and capping out of pocket costs for people so that people are not price sensitive to high price drugs, I think we might end up with a perfect storm where in a couple of years, we're going to be looking at launch prices that are above and beyond where we thought they would be. Yeah, and you know, you would wonder why the negotiation needs to wait nine years. I mean, I don't get me wrong, I totally realize that this is a very important step in the right direction compared to where we were. But uh, part of me is thinking it's, you know, there will be a way around it where I worry about the consumer, uh, ultimately, that some of this, the, the maximum of 2000, that's effective immediately 2026, regardless of the launch prices, no? That will be, um, so in 2025, that will be fully in place. In 2024, they will stop charging coinsurance in the catastrophic phase, which basically equates to people paying a maximum of 3,200-ish dollars starting in 2024. So next year is business as usual, 2024, maximum of about $3,200. 2025 maximum of 2000 out of pocket but both of those changes for people needing cancer drugs you know the 3200 or the 2000 like are huge huge difference than what they're paying today well um can't thank you enough i don't know what to say i think you've taken us uh, through a uh, um uh, a roller coaster of uh, policy and uh and the Inflation Reduction Act, um, nobody could simplify it better than you. So I'm very, very grateful um, for your time. Anything I forgot to ask you you think is important to share with the listeners? No, I think we've probably given them more facts (laughs) than than they can handle. (laughs) I got to tell you, I'll be curious to see the reception of this uh, episode. But I, I do believe that a lot of people will listen to it because I just still don't think that folks understand these details um, and and they don't. there's not a lot of clarity around it. And not a lot of people, as you know, are going to read the whole bill like you did. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's uh, it's super tiny text. It's yeah, like tiny, yeah. tiny. And I've got like many pages marked up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you ever need to have, a, a, you know, something to sleep, I think uh, this is a highly <laughs> recommended read. I completely agree. Also, uh, yeah, it it does test your ability to kind of retain a lot of things in your head. (laughs) But, you know, hopefully it's something that people feel like they can gravitate towards. I find that often it's like breaking it into chunks of thinking about the negotiation, thinking about what happens to Medicare beneficiaries. And I have some hopefully uh, easy to digest writing that will be published soon especially focused on what will it mean for Medicare beneficiaries and what will change about their costs and when so that those who are, you know, practicing clinicians will have a heads up of what when they'll start to see changes for their patients and and how to 
kind of think about the benefits that are coming. Well, I look forward to that. I think uh, um, I think one of the nice things about your writings, honestly, is that they're very easy to read, and uh, you don't need to be a a policy researcher to read that. So I, I, I appreciate that. Well, Dr. Stacey Dusitzina, as always, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you so much. It's great to see you again. All right, friends, colleagues, and listeners, thank you so much for taking the time and listening to this important podcast what a pleasure and an honor to have Dr. Stacy Dusadzina on this podcast. I really hope you learned more about the Inflation Reduction Act than you knew before you tuned in to this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, refer friends and colleagues to the podcast. And as always, let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or sending me an email on my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Before I let you go, I'd like to leave you with a saying from Winston Churchill. Now, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Until next time, take care.